Well, it is good to be with you this Sunday, this day of worship, that we're able to get out of our driveways and be here. Of course, I was telling a few of you that this week, on Monday when the snow flew and it fell and it was thick and deep, and I was going out to to use my snowblower because I was, power, I was proud to have my snowblower and that I was man and I was going to do my driveway, the snowblower didn't work. No, it didn't. But God is so good. Do you know why? In my case this week, God sent me a little angel, my neighbor, who said, don't you worry, I'll snowblow it for you. And he brought his machine over, took an hour, snowblowed me out, and life was good again. <laughs> But you know what? That's one example, but we have hundreds and hundreds of examples of how God has been faithful to us, has, has been there when we needed him, when we needed him at our deepest, darkest points. Let's never forget that. Well, this morning we're back in James chapter 2. And James, uh, I'm enjoying this study, by the way. Uh, I, 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 I want to do every verse with you guys, but for the sake of our 28-day adventure, we're looking at one section of each chapter, and today we're now in chapter 2 and looking at verses 1 through 8 primarily. Uh, the name Mahatma Gandhi rings a bell to you, of course. He was the English uh, Indian, uh, the Indian who, uh, under English rule, um, uh, helped India to be free from the rule of colonial England in a peaceful way. And I read a little story out of uh, the uh, Daily Bread, which we, by the way, have here. If, uh, if you don't get it, you can. It's free, and we provide that for anyone who would like it. Mahatma Gandhi, in this story, uh, it was told and verified that he considered to become a believer, a Christian. He wanted to become a Christian. Uh, as a um, student, he had been reading through the Gospels, and that uh, it seemed to him that Christianity offered a solution to the caste system uh, that plagued the people of India. In the caste system, there were four different castes and then thousands of different groups under each of those castes. And it was a hierarchy. And whatever caste you were born into, that's your caste. You couldn't move up. And so if you were on the lower caste, the poor caste, uh, you could not move to those that were of higher caste. And because they believed that you were reincarnated, when you were reincarnated, uh, that you would either go to that caste again, or then that might be your opportunity to go up in caste. But of course, we know that reincarnation does not happen. When a man dies or a woman dies, they die. So on one given Sunday, Mahatma Gandhi decided to go to a Christian church, and he did. And as he came to the doors, the ushers of that church sent him away saying, you should go worship in your place of worship. Can you believe that? And it was all because he was an Indian. And so this is what Mahatma Gandhi thought of that. He said, if Christians have caste systems or caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. That was a life-changing moment for him, an eternity-changing moment for him. Turned away by the church who is supposed to say, Christ is for all, come in. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, this, this story is tragic. And, and James today is writing in our text about something so very similar, this, the sin of favoritism. Uh, your version from mine at ESV says partiality, where there's a favoritism between the poor and the rich. However, let's not get lost in just poor and rich. Uh, there is favoritism that goes across all kinds of prejudices. It could be economic status. It could be race, educational, gender, many other things. We are a people who tend to be favorites, uh, have favoritism in our hearts and lives, favoring some while diminishing others. Based on outward facts, it's a terrible sin. And it plagued the early church right from the time Christ went back to heaven. The church struggled with partiality. And so last week, as we looked at James 1, the real question was, how big is your God? You know, in everything that is a trial... Have all joy, have, have tremendous joy. So to do that, we have to think differently. We have to think our God is big and he has a reason for all of this trial, all these issues that we're going through and he will take us through them. But this week, it's a little different. It's how do you resent, represent your God? If you are a Christian, how do you represent your God? See, favoritism, partiality is an unholy attitude that's birthed out of pride and it reveals a fallen nature the fallen nature of our hearts this has never been the good news of the gospel ever and so listen to Paul Paul works along with James and Peter and he says this in Galatians 3 there is neither Jew nor Greek uh, there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus isn't that a powerful statement we are all one in Christ Jesus unfortunately this truth didn't come uh, easy to the early church and it still doesn't come easily to the church in general um the Holy Spirit still has had much teaching to do then and, and still has teaching today. That's why this passage continues, remains relevant for all of us today. Because if we were, if we we're absolutely honest, we're all prejudiced in some way, in somehow. Maybe it's a little, maybe it's a lot, but it's an unholy attitude. Listen to what Peter had to say. Now, don't forget, James was written, um, probably the first New Testament book I said last week, AD 45, roughly. This statement out of Acts 10 that I'm about to read uh, comes 20 years after that, roughly. So still struggling. Peter opened his mouth and said, and by the way, Peter had just had this amazing vision. Uh, he had seen all these animals come down in, his four, in this blanket that touched the four corners of the earth. And they're of all kinds. And he said, uh, Lord, I can't, I can't eat of any of those animals. They're unclean, unholy. This is what he said. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
Let's not take light note of that. Everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable him to him. And so in this chapter, James chapter 2, we find so clearly it is so apparent that favoritism is a sinful practice. Think about the church. Think about this thing that we come and uh, this building we come to, but we gather as a group called the church. We are the church, not this building. You and I, we are the church. The local church should baffle the culture around us. It should be bewildered betwixt them because in the world's humanistic thinking, their mindset, they should not be able to explain how the church, which is composed of many different races, many different economic and social levels, age groups, of course, both genders, that we come together perfectly in equality, love, and harmony. That blows the mind of the world. They don't get how that can really, really happen. Unless you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's a hard thing to understand. Because Jesus is the barrier breaker. No matter where you stand in any of the social, economic, gender, race, we're all on equal level at the cross of Christ. That's wonderful news. I think it's a, a piece of news we need to be reminded of regularly. Ultimately, favoritism does not reflect the heart of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful to know? Jesus loves each one of us equally and passionately. So this morning, uh, with the time we have, Let's look at what James says here, and he really is talking about three reasons why favoritism is wrong. I think we'll only have time for two, but you can uh, meditate on the third one in your week ahead. Favoritism is wrong because it attempts to illegitimately replace God's sovereignty. Favoritism replaces God's sovereignty in the wrong way. Favoritism is wrong because it aligns us with God's enemies. And thirdly, favoritism is wrong because it violates the law of love, God's law of love. Okay, let's, let's have a look at the first one. Favoritism is wrong because it attempts to illegitimately replace God's sovereignty. And of course, we know what sovereignty means is, uh, it means that God is always at work in each of our lives, in all of the world, Sometimes we see his work and his directing hand. Sometimes we don't. But God is sovereign, always at work to have his plan come to fruition. So, first verse, chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in the, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Again, he calls them my brothers, my sisters, really. Uh, this is the warmth of a pastor's heart. For these recipients. I mean, he's, he's saying this 13 times in the whole book, in the whole epistle. My children, my brothers. He's writing to professing Christians, and he's writing from this pastoral heart, this heart of care. And he comes with this emphatic em, uh, admonition. 
In other words, uh, my brothers, show no partiality. Stop doing that. Stop showing favoritism. This was never the attitude that Jesus displayed. Just think of our Lord Jesus. Just think of him. He, he, he had a humble birth, had a humble family and upbringing. He had the, this wonderful ministry to all. Even in his day and age, he went to Samaria and Galilee, places that no religious leader of, their, uh, of the nation of Israel would ever go. He went because he had no heart of favoritism. And, and James will go on even further to say this, this is a mindset that is actually sinful. Uh, if you look at verse nine, you, you, you see him very clearly saying that this is sinful. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressor. This is not some little thing. Not saying, oh, that's just the way they are. Or that's just the way I am. It's sin. And it was never the attitude Jesus displayed. So favoritism is an attack on the sovereignty of God. His control and his position as controller of all that happens. So Let's look at a couple ways that favoritism attempts to replace God's sovereignty. First of all, favoritism puts man in the place of judge instead of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Puts us, man, in the place of judge. He opens with this command to never hold our faith uh, in the glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. And he follows it with a clear illustration. Look at verses two through four. For if man uh, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. So a couple guys are coming into the assembly, the meeting, uh, as some of your Bibles will say. One's obviously wealthy and one's obviously poor. It's, it's easily seen by the clothing and the way they're dressed. And he gets directed, the wealthy man gets directed to this lovely seat. Poor man, he gets standing room only. Or maybe he sits at, he's directed to sit at our feet. Definitely a distinction. Definitely one is being favored over the other. And here's what Jesus says about making distinctions like that. Verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil intentions, evil thoughts, evil? Uh, there are three words that, you could, that the writer could have used in the Greek language for evil. The one he chose is the worst of all three. It's a word that has in its background the thought of vicious intentions. So when we do something like having favoritism in our thinking and in our actions, saying that's the worst thing you can do as a representative of Christ. Think about what's happening here. If you know the history of this time, uh, we're not but 20 years after Christ has uh, ascended, and uh, it's, it's tough. If you were a Jewish Christian, who these recipients are, you would probably have been 
ostracized from your family. Can you imagine being kicked out of your family? Uh, you've probably been unemployed, unless you were a self-employed uh, and, and employed in a Jewish uh, situation, they would have said, you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, don't want you in my life or in my employment. Uh, and then not only that, as we learned in chapter one, verse one, they were dispersed all over the place, trying to find a place where they could live and worship Christ. This was difficult. And with this situation in mind, and with this illustration of the rich man and the poor man, um, James has called Jesus some interesting things. Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Lord of glory. And as he's saying that, I'm thinking, James is literally saying to us who are showing favoritism, who do you think you are? You ever ask yourselves that some days when maybe you've not treated somebody else well? Yeah, you know, I had a moment in my life where I asked myself that question seriously. I used to be in Toronto living there and pastoring a church there, and I think I've told you this before, but in Toronto there are beggars on the street downtown everywhere. And I had such a bad spirit, a bad heart for those who are begging, because I'm thinking, why can't you get a job? Why can't you get out and earn a living? Why are you begging on this corner? And I would pass them by. And one day I had a confrontation with somebody because my spirit was such a bad spirit that day. And God convicted me. I realized I was so prejudiced. I was not reflecting the heart of Christ. God changed my heart. I'm so thankful. And now my, one of my favorite things to do throw a roll of loonies or have, make sure I have change in my pocket when I go downtown. I give a little to as many as I can, not to pat myself on the back, but to, to let them know God loves them, to let them know that God has a great plan. And if I, can, if I can have a conversation about the love of Christ, oh, what a wonderful time. But prejudice, it's so easy to take root you see, this is where James is drawing our attention here, where he's saying, you know, we've become judges. James gets us to see how petty are distinctions between the rich and poor, or any other distinctions really are. We start to be judges of people. Even the most powerfully rich men on earth are nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ or the most poor on the earth. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Remember in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was all that. He thought he was the man, that he was greater than God. And God put him in a place where he acted like he was a farm animal that was eating grass of the field. And one day he allowed him to come to his senses. And what did he do in Daniel 4? He acknowledged that God alone was great. And when we have a heart that's prejudiced, we need to get to that place where we stop. We realize we're, we've become the judge. We've usurped God's position and his sovereignty. And we need to say God alone is great. And when we start to exalt men on account of their status, we rob God, we rob Jesus Christ of his glory. 
Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Even the great apostle Paul kept having to deal with this, being puffed up. What's James saying? What's Paul saying? Rather than exalting the rich or someone else for some distinguishing factor, let's exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as we think of others. Jesus alone deserves it. Our very actions speak volumes of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our very lives as believers should be all about pointing out the glory and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what our days are all about? Declaring the majesty, the glory of Christ in how we talk, in how we interact, and in what we think and what we do. Remember, James is faith in action. What are our actions saying? So James reminds us how petty our human distinctions can be. That's the here and now. But he also says he reminds us to look forward to Jesus' coming in power and glory to judge the earth. And he alludes to judgment. If you read verses 12 and 13 in James there, you'll discover that he alludes to there's coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day for the judgment, verse 13, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy of God. It is so deep and it's so rich. We will never, we'll never get to the bottom of the mercy of God in our understanding or even our experience of it. So let's remember, favoritism, it's a a thing that's so sinful And it's rooted in evil thoughts and motives. Uh, When we're looking at each other, we can't see each other's hearts. God can, though. Remember when, um, in the Old Testament, uh, Samuel, the prophet, was told by God, uh, listen, Saul is out of my favor. We need to choose another king. And uh, he went uh, to uh, a family where David was sons of Jesse. And he was supposed to, out of that family, he was, cho- he was directed to that family, he was going to choose another king for Israel. And he looked at one of the sons that were really tall and, and uh, they were handsome. And, and God said this to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Wouldn't it be really nice if we could be able to, as followers of Christ, just easily see the hearts of men? We can't. Only God sees the hearts of men. So therefore, we have no right to judge others. God will do the judging. So let's leave judging behind. Uh, Let's not forget, also, some rich, and it's not all, I want to mention this. Being wealthy is not wrong. Being wealthy can be very good. And, and if we use our wealth for God's glory, fantastic. 
So wealth is, is not wrong. As a matter of fact, there are many, many very godly wealthy people. And there are many very ungodly poor people. So it's not about the wealth. It's about our heart and our attitude. So only God can judge the heart. And it's wrong to take the place of God as judge. Favoritism, secondly, puts man as a sovereign in the place of God who chooses. Let's think about this. It's not our role to make choices in in spiritual matters. It's God uh, about people. Listen, it says in uh, verse 5, my beloved brothers, once again, here he is, pastorally speaking, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who loved him? Again, uh, a rhetorical question. We know the answer already. Has not God chosen? Let's not miss this. Those who wrote the New Testament consistently assume that God chooses those who are saved apart from any merit or qualification on the part of those who are chosen. God is the chooser. And I'm so thankful for that. Salvation is not offered to anyone based on their economic status, nor their, their good looks or lack of good looks. Uh, uh, he's not, we're not chosen on our abilities or talents. God and his choice is completely made because of his grace. Isn't that the most wonderful topic? The grace of God? Paul says in Romans 9, so then it, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The grace of God, the mercy of God coming together in our lives should be the reflection that we show. Grace and mercy. I think James is giving a wonderful refresher to the believers who have been dispersed. Remember the grace in which you experienced the love of God, the mercy. He doesn't come here and and fully explain grace and mercy. He he understood that these recipients would be believers and that they they would have received God's sovereign election. They would have understood it. But it's important for us to remember this. It's also important for us to remember that God doesn't choose poor, those who are poor in this example that he's given uh, for salvation and pass over those who are wealthy. No, that's not what he's doing. God saved wealthy back in this time and he saves those who are wealthy today. He saves poor and wealthy because his mercy and his grace is for all. Again, let's note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. So not so many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But here it is. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have nothing to boast about except the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. 
Just stop for a moment right now, wherever you are, here or online. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he is a respecter of no person. One who does not have prejudice to anyone. And as we reflect on that, ask God to help us to be reflectors of that attitude of God. Well, uh, when I think of this subject, I think of the brevity of life. Do you, do you often think of how, life, how short life is? This year I turned 60 years old. I need a moment. You're clapping, thank you, because you turned 62, I know. Not 62, 60 also. And as I turn this age, and as you turn the next page in your life, do you contemplate the brevity of life? Do you contemplate how quickly life goes by? And as life goes by so quickly, I want to remember to reflect Christ in all that I do, to praise God for what he's done in my life. And I, I think, you remember when Mary heard that she was going to be uh, a mother uh, the mother of God. In Luke 1, she says, uh, this song she brings out, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. She had a moment of just joy to remember what God does. And in that, I think she, she's realized life is short. By choosing those whom the world rejects and despise, God magnifies the riches of his grace. Verse 5 here in, in James chapter 2 uh, talks about uh, to be rich in faith. Uh, rich in the sphere of faith. Uh, if you want a, a great read this afternoon, go to Ephesians chapter 1. We can't take time in it so much in, G, in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Because there, he, it Paul again talks about the spiritual riches we have in Christ. And, and with that thought, uh, think of chapter 2 and verse 5, putting them together where James talks about us being heirs of the kingdom. All of us who are in Christ, whether rich in this world's money or poor in this world's economy, are heirs of the kingdom. We are all equal heirs. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. We are kingdom people, all on the same level playing ground. What a, what a wonderful meditation today as we read through the rest of this and read Ephesians 1. We're kingdom people. That this kingdom that we experience is because of the, the lavished grace of God that has fallen upon each one of us. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Again, we have nothing to boast. Who do we think we are? We are 
people of grace by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. So here we see it. James's first argument is that partiality toward the rich and against the poor or on any other factor, external or what, whatever, is wrong because it, it puts us in the place uh, uh, of judge and it puts us in the place of God who chooses. God is the judge. He's the chooser. We're not. Secondly, bringing this section to a conclusion, favoritism is wrong because it aligns you with God's enemies. I love this argument because it's so straightforward, so simple. And again, he uses a couple rhetorical questions to get his point across. Verse six and seven. But you've dishonored the poor man. You are, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Rhetorical question one. Two, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is stating here that by making distinctions on outward factors, the church has dishonored the poor man. And that's not our place to do that. That aligns us with the enemies of God. Now remember, these are dispersed Christians, Jewish Christians, and they are being given such a hard time. They are literally being persecuted for their faith in, in Christ. And when those that were reading this letter were putting wealthy in positions of honor as they came in, they're taking God's role, who is the only one who gives honor or takes honor away. And they were showing great dishonor to those who are poor. And that's aligning themselves with the rich, those who are against God. Not only that, when we look at it, uh, they were dishonoring the name of Jesus, the ones who we are called by. Uh, basically, that means um, when it would have been the same for a, a, a wife who took the name of a husband. When we come into faith in Christ, we take on the name of Jesus. We are called Christians, Christ followers. And when we treat others with such disrespect and dishonor, we dishonor the name that we are called by. Christ followers. Because here, God's enemies blaspheme the name of Christ by which Christians have been called. When we take on this name, Christian, so much happens. We will come to understand, if not early in our new walk with Jesus, that we have a new sense of independence and we don't need to cringe at those who are seemingly above us. Uh, we take on a new sense of of honesty, and we don't go along with dishonest rulers and leaders. We don't need to. We take on a new sense of priorities, and we make sure that we put Jesus first and his priorities first. And those, those three things alone would cause maybe rich unbelievers that they were having to deal with to blaspheme the name of Christ. And I know today, if you work in corporate Canada, wherever you are, the name of Jesus is blasphemed every single day. 
Somebody gets angry, what do they do? Take the name of Christ in vain. They see nothing wrong with that. And if, it, if, if you're a follower of Christ, doesn't that hurt your heart? Because you know the name of Jesus is the powerful name of Jesus who can save that person from their sins, give them an eternity, and let them enjoy a kingdom which they could inherit. So James here is saying so clearly, don't show any partiality. Don't show any favoritism. Now, again, let me remind you, he's talking about poor versus rich, but you and I both know we show partiality and favoritism in a myriad of ways. Let's not do that. Let's have hearts of love for one another. Let's deal with each other in love. Let's show love by how we talk to each other, what our attitudes are like with each other. Let's show love that reflects the heart of Christ. You know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, that story will always have an impact on my life. It took a couple of people saying, no, you can't worship here with us because you're not like us. You go back to where you ever, wherever you came, you worship there that changed his life. Now, I know God could have done uh, his sovereign work and brought Mahatma Gandhi to Christ in another way. I know that. But the pain of this situation, when I think about it, is those people did not reflect the heart of Christ, the good news of Jesus that says, all are welcome. And as we come into the faith of Christ, we are all equal in Christ. So we can't get to this third one, but look at verse eight. Verse eight is so, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. All of this comes down to one real important principle, is, and that is the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. When we show distinctions, when we judge, when we um, take the place of God as one who chooses who's right and who's wrong, who's good and who's bad, we miss the whole point of the law of Christ, which is the royal law, to love one another as Christ loved us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? Let me close with this scripture said this, for I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king I love what he says about himself. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Christian, how you treat other people reflects on how you love Christ, how you understand Jesus. And yes, may those who do not know Christ see the reflection of Christ's attitude and heart of love through us. 
But let's not forget within the church, how are we treating each other in the church of Christ? The most awesome, wonderful institution that God created. How are we treating each other? Are we speaking to each other with love? Are we showing love in our actions to one another? Because that is what James is talking about. No partiality, no, no prejudice. Let us reflect Christ this week and following. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> oh, so much in this short section of scripture. We are thankful that you give us your word and that in your word there are clear, clear principles of how we should live and act from our heart outward. And the early church was struggling with this for the first many years and continued to struggle with it. I pray that the Bridge Church will always be distinguished as be marked as a church that shows no prejudice, no partiality, that all who come to worship here will see only Jesus in his love, grace, and mercy. Today I pray for those who are here and watching online that if they have not yet trusted Christ, that today they will experience the grace and mercy of Jesus and they will become Christians, ones who are Christ followers and take in his name because eternity, it, it, it matters. May we walk away from our sin and walk towards Christ and his cross. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.